Hello and welcome to an episode of Deprogrammed on Unsafe Space. I am your host, Carrie Smith, and I'm joined today by my sometimes co-host, Carter Laren. Hello, Carter. Hey, Carrie. I was talking to you, actually, but I realized you couldn't hear me. I was like, just uh, pretend it's live. You said you were worried about pre <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm not so great on the pre-recorded, so I don't know why. <laughs> You're fine. That was great. Anyway, I'm very excited today. We're finally, we're going to get to talk to Jack Murphy. Um, Jack is the founder of The Liminal Order. He's also a writer, speaker, podcaster, and he's the author of this book, Democrat to Deplorable, which I know many of you have heard of. If you haven't, you should definitely check it out. Nicole, The Mountain People gave me this book way early on in my transformation and said, oh, this is what's happening to you. You should read this. <laughs> so um, I'm really excited to, to speak with you today, Jack. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Carrie. It's been a long time coming. Happy to make this work today. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you, you had the uh, time. And, and I just want to say, first of all, thank you. <laughs> like, thank you for putting this book together. I know it's been a while now and you're probably tired of talking about it, but I was just skimming through it. And I'm like, this is, you were one of the first people that I know of that sort of made this transformation of um, moving, well, as you call it, Democrat to deplorable. And I was wondering, can you, can you talk a little bit about, do you think that you changed or do you think the world changed around you or both? That's a really interesting question. I think that I have long said that, uh, I, and I wrote this in the book even, that uh, I stood still and the world, you know, careened to the left. And, you know, I, I still stand by that more or less. And what I mean by that is that, you know, centralist, centrist, seemingly moderate ideas of like free speech and letting each other be and live and cherishing America and whatever. Those things are now all so foreign to the left and the left has just careened so far off to the side that they now have an entirely new sense of justice uh, an entirely new sense of what the Constitution means, what rights are, what history was. Uh, that was was in process when I wrote the book, but has certainly got worse now, right? Like uh, critical race theory wasn't named as such as explicitly in 2016 and 17 when I wrote the book. Uh, so we just called it this, you know, mishmash of postmodernism and Marxism and feminism and all these and these things. Social which, justice. Social justice, which has now been very succinctly summarized into critical race theory. Uh, and and so on that perspective, yes, the world changed while I stood still. Now, as I continue to get older and more mature and more thoughtful and reflective, I can see that I I too have changed. Uh, I, too, have changed in my understanding of what, let's say, liberty means. Uh, there was a time when I was younger where I thought liberty meant license to do whatever I wanted, stay out of my life, stay out of my way, don't impede me, don't suggest they do anything, just let me be exactly what I want whenever I want, however I want to do it. But I have now come to understand that that is bordering on what the founders called licentiousness, mm. which is liberty run amok, liberty with no values, liberty with no virtues, liberty with no morals. And what I understand now about the founding and about our republic and about the type of citizen required to maintain a republic uh, such as ours is that liberty isn't the freedom to run amok. It's it's liberty to do what you it's not liberty to do what you want. It's liberty to do what you ought. 
Uh, and in this case, in our case, that is to lead a moral, virtuous, spiritual life. And liberty in the sense that the founders envisioned it was trying to take, a, you know, trying to move the government out of the way of you expressing your values, your virtues, your morals, and your ideas of justice. And so I think that I have changed in that perspective and in, in understanding that liberty and rights also have duties mm -hmm. and wanting as a, as a more mature person now to figure out what those duties are and uphold them and lead a virtuous life so I can be a productive citizen in the founding, in the, in the government that the founders had envisioned when they created it. Now we can talk about whether or not our government today is the government as envisioned by the founders. I don't think it is at all. And we can certainly have a discussion today about whether or not the people and the citizens that make up the government or make up the nation that are governed by our government, whether those people are the same as they were at the time of the founding too. We can talk about that as well. But in summary, yes, the world has just blasted to our left and I have continued to evolve and mature as a thinker and as a human. Uh, I, I, can't say for sure that I wouldn't have had that evolution had I had the rest of the political sphere not changed. Mm -hmm. You know, that the things that I have learned are more about deepening your education and deepening your understanding of the world rather than taking sound bites or glossed over histories from high school or casual ideas of, <clears throat> of what the government means or what liberty means. Um, but all in all, I mean, I think it's a good sign that, that I am continuing to evolve personally. I know many other people in our space are evolving personally, and I think it's possible that the trauma, to use an overused word today, the trauma that we're experiencing from this radical transformation of our political space is triggering introspective introspection within yes. people. And then therefore, <laughs> as you begin to dig deeper into yourself and what your values really are and what you really think is important, well, then you should have some growth in that manner. Yes. Uh, so I kind of see them as going hand in hand, really. I, mean, I, I could get back to the liberty question, but I want to kind of go down a different angle that you brought up here um, with this, this idea that Carrie brought up originally of the world moving past you. Um, you said something on your website that to the I'm paraphrasing, but it was something about, you know, 10 years ago, we could kind of ignore the craziness in colleges and now we can't anymore. Like um, how much. You know, one of the things that that's evolved for me, and I just I'm curious if this is true for you. I'm I'm feeling a personal sense of responsibility for letting it get this far to some extent. Not that I'm in charge of the nation and our and everyone's behavior. Obviously, that's psychotic. But um, there's this sense that many times we looked at craziness that was going on and said, "Well, those are just those are just bad ideas." and they'll we can live our lives and not pay too much mind to those bad ideas because they're obviously dumb and they'll grow out of it uh, but it seems like maybe that's something that a, a century who was asleep at his post would say afterwards i'm wondering what your comment on that is well i think that there's a micro level and a macro level to that in the grand scheme of history bad ideas i think eventually extinguish themselves <laughs> And, but that's the, the long arc of yes. history. That's, that's reading back, uh, that's reading in 2222, about 2022 or 2021. 
and you know reflecting on it with the kind of historical perspective so i think and possibly a hundred million dead bodies that have been left in the wake of the totally battle. totally absolutely yeah. true and my mom gives me that my mom gives me the <laughs> argument a lot when we're talking she just waves her hand she's like ah history will work itself out and in some <laughs> respect in some respects she's she's right she's right right like an ideology that breeds death and destruction versus life and liberty is not one that's going to you know to to persist uh, but at the same time, history is made by men and women on the margins in the moment in the day. And so in order for that grand historical arc to take place, we as individuals in the moment have to take action as well. So sitting back and just being like, ah, oh, this is all work itself out in the end is, is, um, sorry, mom, that's a coward's take. Uh, you yeah. have to really embrace the fact that we make history. We make change. We are the ones that the burden falls upon and so yeah to say uh that that what's evolved is is sort of like a century being asleep at his post i think is partially correct i think um the risks were not necessarily entirely evident to most people and well it's still not evident to most people obviously because here we are right. uh, but even 10 years ago it was even fewer still and it was easy to dismiss radical college kids as just kids. They're just stupid. You know, these things yeah. will never take. There and, was... I th and I think just to finish that thought there, I think that it's interesting to, when you look at something that's absurd on its face, like let's destroy the family so we can have communism, right? Absurd <laughs> on its face. But yet uh, when we are removed from the consequences of ideas, as we are increasingly so from the consequences of actual communism, uh, you you forget the actual downsides and and Abraham Lincoln uh, addressed this notion uh, in his I think it's called the address to the Lyceum where he was talking about how the the founding fathers are all dead and all the revolutionaries are all dead and we have at that time forgotten really why it was that they struggled why it was that they fought why it was that they sacrificed their lives and we forgot that everything that we had today and then was due to these people sacrificing themselves. And so it becomes easier to you become unanchored to uh, the reality of the situation as time proceeds. And I think that we're here at that kind of stage right now too, where, you know, communism in practice, you know, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people dead. That's so long ago that people haven't lived with it. So they don't really understand the power of what that means. <clears throat> and so I think it's important for us to, to remember, and that's why history is so important. And every day that goes by, I become more of a history buff and want to learn and read more about history because the answers are all there. And the memories that we need to, to cherish or revere or, or mourn are all there as well. And they all can inform what we're doing today, which is why on a day like today, where they tore down the statue of Robert E. Lee in Virginia is momentous day. I'm not lamenting the fact that a Civil War Confederate general statue was removed. What I am lamenting is that history is being taken down mm -hmm. and that we're forgetting what that monument even stood for, right or wrong, bad or indifferent or good. Uh, I, I went, last comment on this, I, I went to um, uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico, and in the public square there was a monument first erected to like the people that fought the savages, you know, at that time. 
And there was all this sort of negative language around um, Native Americans and the battles that they fought and how they were savages and such. And rather than tearing that statue and monument down, they erected another plaque next to it that said, like, you know, the language of this time is inflammatory, yada, yada. We don't use these terms anymore, but it's really good for us to remember what it was like then so that we can become who we want to be in the future. And I thought to me that that was the best way to deal with a historical monument that seems wrong in today's context. And it's important to remember all of the context for all of these conversations. There's a point why I brought up all all these different ideas right now is because we have to remember what happened so that we can not repeat those same mistakes moving forward. Yeah. I, I love I, that idea uh, of providing context, by the way, that, that for statues and stuff, that's a great solution. Sorry, Carrie. Go yeah, ahead. Okay. I was really struck by it. So so a lot of the times we talk about a lot of these issues, uh, Jack, and we seem sometimes we're torn between I still want to talk to people who haven't woken up yet. So you mentioned, you know, there are still some people who don't see it, uh, who, who don't see the craziness that we were seeing on college campus campuses that they don't even see it now as, as far along as it's, as it's gotten. Um, but I still want to talk to those people. And at the same time, sometimes I think I'm wasting my time and we should just be talking to people who are awake. That's more of Carter's position. Let's talk to those who are already awake. He says, Carrie, the house is on fire and you're trying to pull people out and I'm just trying to dig a trench around it. <laughs> like, so uh, two questions for you. One is in your book, you were talking about how, when you started to see things a little differently. It was a bit like Rip Van Winkle and you had gone through these personal changes. You were going through a divorce, which that's weird because it was similar to me. I was going through a lot of personal changes that helped me with that awakening. Um, And then you said that it actually was the getting back into the dating world that helped you to see how, how, how the world had moved past you, how different the world had become. Can you explain a little bit about like how seeing changes in your personal life or how the dating world helps you to see changes in the world around you? Yeah, certainly. So two, two really big, powerful questions there. The first one in terms of like, do we address the people who are uh, awakening or do we address the people that are still in, in the thralls of this ideology that is counterproductive and antithetical to America? I, I, I am less hopeful these days about reaching people who are still enthralled. Uh, I believe that in order to shake an ideology like that, one that you are ego invested in, and by that I mean it's part of your identity. Yes. It's part of who you are. It's part of what you do. It's part of your reason for existence. Um, it's part of what propels you forward. It's very, very, very difficult to ask people to examine something that's propelling them forward that they think in a positive way and re-examine and, and change direction. Very, very difficult. Um, ideologies, I think, in general, are difficult to rational rationalize with. Is that a word? I don't know. Uh, it's difficult to be rational with. It's difficult to argue uh, with in a, in a you know, clinical sense. Or to look at it objectively, it sounds like what you're saying. It's, yeah, it's difficult yeah, to it's very difficult to do that. It's very difficult to do that. And for me, it took a trauma, a tra- well, a series of traumatic incidents, one of which was a divorce, which introduced me to family law, which introduced me to this world of men in pain because they couldn't be with their children. 
and how unfair and destabilizing that was for all of us. And then it took getting fired from a job in which I was performing at the highest levels possible simply because I was a white male for social justice reasons, was taking my position. I was ousted. And then this is before I got canceled, by the way. I was just got fired for being a white male, even though I'd hit all my performance metrics, got my bonus, all these things. And I was replaced by a, <laughs> a black female lesbian who then took our project and ran it into the ground. Not because she's black or female or lesbian, but because she was incompetent. She was chosen because she was black female lesbian. And I was ousted because I was a cis straight white dude. Competence had nothing to do with any of that. That was traumatic for me. And that's so naive looking back on it. But I remember even in college being like, I can't wait to get out into the real world where everybody's going to be smart and motivated and see reality for what it is. And uh, I have yet to walk into that room yet at 45 and dealing with people at the highest levels of government and business and literature and education and everything. I still have yet to walk into that room where like everybody's got it figured out. Uh, the second part about the dating market. Now, why I got divorced, I want, and this was like 2008 or nine, you know, I, not everybody even had a smartphone at that point in time. Like, we were still figuring out like Tinder. I don't even think it was a thing at that time. And like, it was so confusing yet, even still in that early stage, it was so confusing and foreign to me having been in a relationship for 10 years prior to that, you know, from like 1998 to 2008, <clears throat> that I had no idea what was going on. So I started clicking around and reading online. Like, how do I, how do I meet some girls? And I just started pulling on that thread and then understand what was going on in the dating and mating markets and like the impact of feminism and disparate educations and what hypergamy means and, 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 and what all of these like promote women here and in college and in jobs and what all this stuff meant and how it translated into the dating and mating market, how it reduced the number of uh, desirable men and like, really just screwed everything up. And so I just kept asking and digging and, and truly I have been pulling on that same thread since 2008, still pulling on it today. I've been pulling on that same thread from like, how do I find a girlfriend in 2009? Uh, digging all the way back now to source documents on the founding of state constitutions and, you know, pre-revolutionary America. <laughs> like it's all, it's all connected. It's all connected. One of your headings was what upsets the bedroom upsets the country. Correct. Correct. But it, you know, it might, the, the causality might be the other way at this point is what I, I'm learning. Mm. Uh, and, or, or that they're, they're just both symptoms of the same thing. And so, you know, the, the dating and mating and marriage markets are all screwy and there's a lot of to blame for feminism for that. And then you see what feminism was and has become and what it's morphed into. And you now see how they're all related and how, <clears throat> We need to go back to a little bit more traditional understanding of people and and it's gender, uh, you know, and and other elements of 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 humanity in order to get back to a more better functioning system. Because mm -hmm. I I don't think anyone right now would argue that our dating and mating and marriage markets are operating at a high level that's beneficial to society. I, I don't right. think so. I don't think so. I, well, the left means. might actually. Well, that's right. Any, any sane person. Except they, <laughs> they, even the left, even the feminists, social justice feminists, which I was one of those, they will admit in, in studies, they will say, like, they report a lot, a decline in happiness 
now as compared to decades ago, much less happy. <laughs> Definitely. Much uh, higher rates of depression, higher rates of anxiety, higher rates of feeling lonely and inadequate. You know, all these things are on the rise. They're all related. They're all mm -hmm. related. And no matter how many times and how much money we, how many times we say more, we need more women in STEM and how much more money we throw at it, getting more women to be physicists isn't going to change anything. I think what you'll end up with is a lot. You're going to increase that number of unhappy women. I, I went to a science and math high school and um, there's another study that talks about women who, women who perform uh, high, high performing in science and math. They're also usually high performing in other areas. Whereas men who are on the, the end of that bell curve are usually only high performing in math and science. And so a lot of the women have, other options. And, and I think to what are the women doing for my science and math high school? We're not in, uh, there are some of us in, in science. There's, I have a friend at Genentech, you know, but, but a lot of us are doing things that are outside that realm. And that's by choice. Whereas the men are all at Google, they're all engineers. And, uh, you know, one of the know. watershed moments in this culture war was the James Damore Google memo. Gosh, how mm -hmm. long ago was that now? Four or five years ago. Like four yeah. years, five years. Yeah. Well, a while yeah. Ago. Right, where he attended a diversity, equity, and inclusion seminar that demanded, uh, you know, to examine why they didn't have 50 50 number of men and women engineers at Google. And he responded by a, you know, writing a 10 page report citing, you know, well respected studies and journals that said basically men and women have different psychological profiles and different interests and therefore yes. are going to make different choices, which seems like such a radically obvious thing to say it's startling that anyone finds it to be novel or weird or wrong and it's that type of thinking that permeates all of our issues today which is that men and women are exactly the same but it's not even so much that they believe that men and women are exactly the same what they want to do is make women and men exactly the same mm -hmm. and it goes back to feminist original feminist literature uh, Beauvoir talking to Betty Friedan in an interview that was widely published in the sixties. And she says very explicitly, we have to destroy all notions of femininity and maternity and masculinity and fatherhood. We have to destroy these notions to liberate women from the drudgery of housework so that they can get out there and work in corporate America. And what do can you I, do then? What do you yeah, do I then with ask... the women and the children? Oh, you, you create, co-opted spaces, co-op spaces where other people can take care of your kids. Won't that be so great? And then we'll have to come up with communal living arrangements in a communist economic system. It's explicit in their literature that in order to enact a communist regime, you have to destroy masculinity and femininity because you have to destroy the family. And so when they say now today, oh, men and women are all the same. Why don't we have parity? It's not that they anybody truly objectively can look at a man and woman and say they're the same. What they are expressing is their urgent desire to make men and women exactly the same so that they can destroy the family so that they can enact their communists. But the thing is just like we forgot why our for our forefathers shed blood in order to create this country and defend it. We have forgotten the feminists have forgotten why the feminists got started in the first place, which was to achieve their goal of communism. So you've got women and people and men 
men out there pushing an idea of feminism who have no idea that its real goal is to destroy the family and put in its place communism. They think Same thing all, with BLM. Yeah, that's well, right. It's all it's all fused together now, right? It's all it's all a Marxist approach. Uh, and and a critical approach, which is to say that uh, you know philosophy without action is worthless, and that it's all about uh, you know the, the oppressive power structures, and you need to destroy the oppressive power structure in order to liberate people. Uh, but then, of course, you know they never discuss what happens when they're creating their own power structures after the fact. But my point here is that we have forgotten what the founding was about. We have forgotten the the other side has forgotten why they're even arguing about feminism. You know, I, I, I interviewed, you remember when uh, Jay Danielson got murdered in, in Portland last summer by Antifa? And there was a camera guy who just happened to be right in the right place the whole time who recorded the whole exact thing, minute by second by second. So I found that guy and then I interviewed him and he had been telling me about how his daughter had been taking him down to the Antifa Black Lives Matter protests in Portland. He's like, I support it. I'm all in favor of it. It sounds great. Yada, yada. And I was like, you're a dad, right? Yep. You believe in the power of family? Yeah, of course. Did you know that Black Lives Matter believes in destroying the nuclear family? <sighs> that can't be possible. And in the middle of our interview, I pulled up a screen share of their actual website where it said it right there, written in black and white. And you know what his response was? Must be a typo. Wow. So when, when, wow. when, when confronted with the reality in black and white, which they have subsequently taken off their website after all this criticism. Yeah. When confronted with the, the words in black and white, people are still in denial, still in denial. So, Circling back to your earlier question, to coin a phrase, should we address people that are still enthralled or still, or, or who are, have like come to a moment of humility through crisis who are looking to expand their horizons? It's tough. I think you have to do all of it really because you need to create awareness, even if they can't see it at the time. Maybe you plant a seed that in five years when they have their event, they can think back on that and it makes some sense to them. Yeah. It's tough, dude. This is, this is a, a, a total culture war. And by total war, I mean, I'm thinking of, of, of Robert E. Lee and Sherman. Uh, sorry, Robert E. Lee versus Grant. And Grant was like, look, we, this is total war. We have to go in there. We have to destroy everything about their way of life. We have to destroy all of their factories, all of their fields. We have to put salt in their fields. We have to destroy the Shenandoah Valley. Valley. We have to make it so that they literally can't even have a civilization. That same approach is being applied to us right now, culturally speaking. And it's at, at the level of, of economics and finance down to the level of family and sexuality and spirituality. They are conducting a total cultural war on us in order to destroy everything about our way of life so that they can implement whatever utopian visions that they have. That was a lot. Yeah, there's a lot there. I mean, I, I almost don't know what to respond to. I mean, the one thing I wanted to say about uh, the feminist stuff is something that strikes me about um, feminism, even from the early days of feminism, is um, they seem to simultaneously um, deride and belittle uh, traditionally feminine values and um, and yet judge feminine female value 
by then masculine standards. So it's, it's weird. They like claim that they care about women, but what they're going to do is judge women's place in society based on male, <laughs> male centric, or we'll say traditionally masculine centric values. So what they say is, well, women don't have economic power. Okay. But they have sexual selection power, but that doesn't mean anything to the feminists, right? The feminists, hate sexual selection power. They don't care about that. They don't care about any of the, the things that that women typically have. So they, they almost are trying to morph women into, they're trying to shoehorn women into this model that's really based on, ironically, max, masculine values. Uh, here's a, a, secret, though, a secret though. They do like having sexual selection power and they, but they will pretend like it doesn't exist. Oh, of course, they enjoy, right. Yeah. <laughs> they, well, no, they just it's evident. It's evident in their support for abortion. Yes. The support for abortion is the woman's ultimate sexual selection power where she can release her, you know, sexual urges and whatnot, but yet still have sexual selection over her outcome, her, her offspring. But you point out a very good, a very good, uh, you make a very good point. The, the destruction of the femininity was replaced by the idealization of masculine energy at the same time as telling men that they shouldn't be masculine. So the whole point is to confuse or to use their word to queer everything, which means to destroy boundaries, which means to make us all the same, which is to make us nothing. I've always found that very interesting that the, the replacement for feminine energy was a masculine, a masculine ideal. Now, one thing that they should have done is celebrate feminine power. They denigrated the mom on purpose, explicitly by design. Mm -hmm. And that's a shame, you know, in the liminal order, you know, one of our core values is masculinity. And we just had a a masculinity workshop this morning. And, you know, one of the things we're continuously struck by is that in our definition of masculine energy and our elevation of masculinity within ourselves and our community, we are simultaneously elevating and cherishing feminine energy because you can't have one without the well you can but you shouldn't you should have them both they should be complementary they should in fact be equal and they should work together to create a more powerful whole a powerful whole which is one of the reasons why divorce is so detrimental to children is because then in their individual environments they just get straight doses of feminine energy and straight doses of masculine energy when you actually need both of them together can you can you tell us a little bit about i was just at a, i had a meetup in uh, Washington. And I met someone who's in your liminal order. So I was looking at that on your website. Can you tell us a little bit about what that's about? Yeah. So we've identified these root causes just now about feminism and radical feminism and Black Lives Matter, et cetera, and how that they've you know taken over all of our institutions, our government, starting back in the 60s with just little kids in college campuses and adjunct professors making their way all the way through the institutions, all the way through the Kavanaugh hearings where they're using the words of radical feminism in the in the Senate, and then all the way up into Joe Biden in his first address of the joint session of Congress saying clearly as possible that white supremacy, which they mean all of us white people, is the number one threat facing America. Okay, so this has gotten now a complete and total takeover of all of our institutions. And at the core of this, this evil ideology really is the destruction of masculine energy. Masculine energy brings masculine power. Masculine power in their eyes is the source of the patriarchy. The patriarchy is the source of all oppression. In order to end oppression, you've got to end 
all those things in backwards order down to masculine energy. So we've identified, and we're not unique in this, identified the attack on masculine energy as the core problem facing America. And so what is the antidote? Well, more masculine energy. And so on a personal level, you can work to develop your masculine energy, which is to be honor, honor, courage, loyalty, mastery, strength. Uh, we're builders, creators, protectors, providers, instructors. We can improve those elements in our personal lives for our own personal benefit and for our family's benefit. But then when we do that in aggregate, it benefits the community. And hopefully if enough communities do that, we can benefit the nation. So we have at once a unified mission of personal development for personal reasons, for your reasons for your family, reasons for your community, and then reasons in aggregate to save the country, to save America. So we have these dual goals. And it's, it, it reminds me a little bit of the Jordan Peterson idea of get your house in order. Definitely. That, that's the best way to affect change in the world. Totally. But, you know, not only get your house in order, get your house in order in a particular way. Uh, and Jordan Peterson didn't come up with that. He didn't even come up with make your bed. He didn't come up with concentric circles of care. These are, these are all time Lindy values. These are not new. They've been forgotten. Yeah. I remember I went to um, Evergreen State College and gave a, a speech there. I addressed a class for, for a whole day. It was a lot of fun. Wow. And... Um, <laughs> Yeah, as a side note, it was so fresh on the Brett Weinstein thing that they heard chairs and tables shuffling in the hallway while I was talking, and they all panicked because they thought we were being barricaded in the room. Wow. That's how that's how on edge that place was. The president did... of the the president of the state of the college was supposed to come speak with me at the session, but he backed out at the last minute. I'm surprised they didn't completely ban me. But anyway, in there they were arguing. They're like, "Well, why? What's wrong with me being focused on feeding starving children in sub-Saharan Africa?" And I'm like, "Okay, that's fine. But like, what's your personal life like? What's your family situation like? What is it like for the people living next door to you? Why don't we just start there? You don't have an inexhaustible energy of care and concern. Mm -hmm. It benefits you most to do it to 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 benefit the people that are most approximate to you." Um. Oh man, there was another question I was getting to here. Oh, concentric circles of care. Right. So we start with ourselves. And so you can, in a sense, be selfish, but selfless at the same time. Men are beasts of burden. We are animals of service. We protect, we provide, we create, we build, we instruct. All these things we do for other people. And so in order to become a better man, or no, sorry, as you become a better man, your family gets, becomes better. And as your family becomes better, so does the community. And so then does the nation. So the liminal order is dedicated to helping men help mankind. And we do this by starting with ourselves unapologetically. And we do that by starting in the squat rack. My antidote for the world is to fucking, oh, excuse me. Do I don't know. You're fine. Do squats. <laughs> squats. Yeah. Saving the world starts in the squat rack, guys. No joke. I love that. No, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I, you know, you can't, there's a nuance and I, I wonder if this is how you view it or not. But when I, when I hear what you're saying about, the concentric circles and starting, you know, selfishly and selflessly at the same time, because you're, you're doing these things for other people. Um, who you're doing them for needs to be your choice. It needs to be because you love those people. That's like, I'm not, I don't selflessly take care of my daughter and wife. I do it selfishly. I love my daughter and wife, and I don't want a world in which they're not taken care of. So that's my motivation. And I think, um, if you view men as beasts of burden, one of the goals 
of collectivist ideology is to domesticate that those beasts under the thumb of the state. I, I, I agree 100% with you. And you, you're right. There, there is another layer, layer of nuance there, which is what are your motivations and why? And you pointed that out very clearly. And, and we, I think history has shown that when given the choice to make our own decisions, we support them far force, more forcefully than when someone else makes a decision and compels us mm -hmm. to do that. And in that respect, the free hand of the market works very well when you have ownership, when you're living an authentic life, when it's connected to your ideas of right and wrong and proximate care and the things that are important to you. And, you know, speaking of Jordan Peterson, it reminds me of that semi artificial bull crap controversy around when he said that socially enforced monogamy was a good thing. Right. You know, hello, socially enforced, not socially. government, not government enforced. And again, this is, this goes back to liberty versus licentiousness, freedom. It's not freedom to do what you want. It's freedom to do what you ought. And there is a reason why monogam monogamous relationships and marriage have been a fundamental building block for society. And it's exactly what you were talking about there. Yeah. When you have kids and wife and kids in a family, it engages all these other elements of your masculine energy. I can tell you right now, if I had no wife or children, I would probably work a lot less. Mm. You, it also makes me think Play of, more Xbox. Yeah. You have more boundaries. It's um, one of the things I read a couple years ago that really stuck with me was, was it was about Augustine, St. Augustine and how he was writing about the uh, freedom within boundaries. And that there's a certain kind of freedom that only comes from having the responsibilities or, you know, what do you call it, Carter? You, you get, you tell me it's called Chesterton's fence. Is that oh, well, something similar? Well, there's, yeah, there's Chesterton's fence, which is, which is similar, which is this idea of you you shouldn't tear the fence down until you know why it was built in the first place, Right. which is kind of, that's more of like a respect for, Hey, smart people came along and erected this fence. Maybe it was a bad idea. Maybe we've evolved. Maybe we don't need it. But until I understand why it was erected, uh, it is, uh, it's dangerous and, and in a cavalier way, just I can't just pull it down without, without knowing. Um, I kind of think of that in the same way because I think about like art, for example. If you look at a lot of postmodernist art, there's no rules. It's sort of we're free to do whatever, and we're just going to throw paint on a canvas. And it's amazing. It's like no, but if you don't know the rules, if you haven't mastered all these techniques, then you don't actually have the freedom to break them in, in a really unique and new and beautiful way. You're just throwing paint on a wall. One of my one of the art exhibits that I appreciated most, and I'm not necessarily a fan of postmodern art by any means, but the National Gallery put together an exhibit of postmodern art based on line, color, weight, shade, etc. The basics of art, color, and it was curated in a way that showed the progress through the visual arts of attacking and analyzing and working with line, working with color working with shape. And that was actually very powerful to see the way the artists examine these basic elements. And then sort of afterwards, you know, it's just all turned into political dissident art, which isn't actually dissident because it's reinforcing the dominant narrative today, which is ironic. Yeah. Super, super ironic. <laughs> yes. Super ironic. 
So can, can I know we, we, we have a, a hard out today and I want to, I have a final question I want to ask, but Carter, you go ahead. I didn't realize what time it was, so I'm not sure I should ask my question. So maybe why go ahead. Well, okay. I, 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 there's a, there's a Liberty, you, you, you mentioned this Liberty thing and Carrie talked a little bit about the boundaries and you, we were just talking about that. I think one of my, one of my issues with the way that we have viewed the words liberty and freedom is we've conflated the idea of political liberty with liberty from consequences in reality. And one you should and ought to have. The other one is by its nature impossible. And the more you try and force it, the more broken reality like, things become. Indeed. So political liberty is getting the government out of the way of you doing what you know what you should and want to do. And then and then discrimination is actually evidence of a of a free nation in that i mean if you do or say something stupid then the people around you can decide to associate with you or not right and i think that you should have both and there should be both and the government should be out of your way and then you should also be judged on your actions you know i got canceled years ago and a lot of what they said were absolute outright lies However, some of the things that they cited, I actually wrote and I stand by. And somebody said, look, you know, the little league can ban you because they just don't want you around their kids because you think that way. And while I disagree with them in their interpretation of what I said and my intention behind what I said, I kind of do understand in a socially organized community based organization where it's just parents and kids getting together. Yeah, they sure as heck can choose who's going to be associated with them. Yes. Now, the fact that what they based their you know decision to terminate me from coaching Little League based upon I disagreed with, so I disagree with them. But the idea that we can't freely associate is insane. And the idea that you can do or act without judgment by your fellow citizens is also insane. Yeah. And therein lies the compelling argument for being a virtuous moral person, independent of what the politics are of the time. And in our world at least until recently, and in the founder's mind, they wanted the government to stay out of the way of people acting in a moral, virtuous, and religious way. Separation of church and state wasn't to keep the church out of the state. It was to keep the state out of the church. I mean, there were like pastors and preachers and reverends on, on government payrolls into the 1800s, right? There's God all over our documents and all over our monuments and all over our buildings. It's not as if separation of church and state was to eradicate the church from the state. No, it's to keep the church out of the state to give you the ability to express your views and, and your virtues and your morals in a world in which you are judged mm -hmm. by your peers in your community. You need that behavior. social ostracism. If you're going to have the political liberty, you need to have some pressure for good behavior. And that should be voluntary social pressure. Indeed. Indeed. And so when the the founders had no concept of widespread atheism. That just wasn't a thing. It wasn't on their radar. It didn't exist. It wasn't even anything they contemplated when they designed a republic that required the existence of a moral, virtuous, and religious people. John Adams, very clear on this subject. Very explicitly clear. And they so, were, I mean, look, just to be clear, I'm an atheist. I don't actually think religion is necessary. And I think there was definitely a culture of, of 
lack of atheism at the time. Absolutely. It wasn't on anyone's radar. Like I, I will agree with that. Um, but I don't, I disagree with the characterization that there was an intended theocratic nature to. I think it was just US, an assumption right? though. Well, I mean, Thomas Jefferson was more of a deist. I mean, they, like they, there's this, there's this hole for how do we explain some things? And there's like this, this idea that there must be, uh, some higher power and that was generally accepted and i i think you know i think the issue that a lot of people have with atheism is most atheists have no values that are moral relativist and or they're marxists um so yes. yeah uh, so you, you know you, you, you people like ayn rand can come along and give me lots of moral arguments that are quite in line with some of christianity not all of it but that work just fine right um and i would argue better we don't have to get into that argument. We don't have a lot of time. So it's entirely possible that you're right in that regard. However, I would say you're you're especially right in what you said about atheists lacking any morals and becoming totally relativistic. Like if you're going to make a choice, I mean, look, it, Aristotle or Christianity, some combination therein, but something that gives you a moral framework for virtue, living a virtuous life that you adhere to. And that there are consequences yes. for not adhering to. Absolutely. Carter's right? very Absolutely. tolerant of my Christianity. And he's also, what did you say? You'd rather live in a Christian theocracy because at least it has a moral framework than. Yeah. To I mean, live look, in I, a I, I have disagreement. Sure. I have some, dis I have disagreements, but which are fundamental uh, with Christianity. But um, look, that I'm also, I also have my eyes open at reality. 95% of the atheists I meet are, you know, Marxist moral relativists or hedonist or some kind of like horrible combination thereof. It's like, well, Jesus, like I, I might disagree with some Christian stuff, but I would much rather live in that society. Um, if it's Christianity informed by Aristotle, if it's Christianity of the founding fathers, not if it's 13th century Christianity, I'm not sure which I would choose if those are my two options. On I don't know. Medieval Christianity, not, not exactly uh, coherent with modern life. And some people would argue, you know, that's a that's an argument for going back uh to those times but you're right like the aquinas you know evolution mm -hmm. and connecting aristotle uh, uh and to uh christianity and then setting the stage for the founders interpretation and then lincoln later coming and connecting aristotle and the ancient philosophies to our founding and giving it even greater context uh than we had previously very powerful and look one thing is for sure, most people in America, if they listen to what this last 20 minutes of our conversation, would have no idea what we're talking about. Mm. Not the people, not the concepts, not the reason, not the history, not the motivations, not the consequences, none of these things. They would have no concept. They can't even point out Texas on a map. Okay. They would be pretty sure that we're all racist, though. So let's just be clear. 100%. <laughs> and I mean, sexist. That's internally. A really, that's a sad, terrible joke, but you're absolutely right. They would be pretty sure about that. So if anything, we need to just be better at education. And that's why this Lee statue coming down today troubles me so, because that is a teaching opportunity that yeah. is no longer going to be there. And the only thing that people are, not to mention the fact that the guy had positive virtues. Okay. There's no yeah, question. Sure. Uh, I am partial to his perhaps exceptional leaning on loyalty. 
I, I am almost partial to that in the sense that loyalty above almost everything to me, um, but not, not above all. Um, so, you know, these learning opportunities are going to be gone. The education is in complete disrepair. The kids have no idea. Our contemporary, just modern American culture have no idea of any of these notions. And we're lost because of that. Desperately I, so. I think that, well, that'll lead into that. This is a good uh, ending sort of this question because we always try to find hope at the end <laughs> or sometimes we succeed and other times we don't. <laughs> um, Nicole, who gave me your book a couple of years ago, she said, she wanted me to ask you this. She said, um, I guess I would want to ask him what my neighbors and I have been asking each other. How are we going to make this end? What's the plan? The plan. Everyone is getting very nervous that this insanity is never going to end. What can we do and how can we fight back? I mean, that's, that's the question of the day. That is the question of the day is the question behind every closed door at every think tank, uh, behind every conversation online in this space. I mean, what are we going to do? I don't have the final answer. The final, the final answer on the question. I don't have the final answer on this question, but I do know one part of it. And I'm not here to shill, but the liminal order is one part of that. Yeah. Returning to a values-based community wherein those values are congruent with our American ideals and produce American citizens that uphold our American ideals. That is essential. No matter what the rest of the political outcomes may be, no matter civil war or this or a new Supreme Court ruling or whatever, what I just proposed, values-based communities that produced value-driven people that adhere and support the American vision, that is an essential component to it. Essential. What do and I that's think? what was destroyed first, by the way. That that that's that was the first target. Of course, because it is yeah. the glue that holds us together. And not yeah. to not to uh, not to be so super Claremont on you guys, but I did just have the fellowship last month, so a lot of this is fresh in my mind. But the founders even understood that at the time, and they proposed to create national schools in order to foster republicanism, patriotism and understanding of philosophy and virtue and morality so that people will know what to do when they live in the system that we have created for them. Education has been destroyed. Values have been destroyed. The church is falling apart by all yep. accounts of people that go, I'm, I'm not a regular church goer, but this is what I hear from people. And so all of those guardrails, all of the things that gave us meaning, value, education, safety, security, happiness, purpose, all those institutions gone and corrupted, done. They're never, ever, ever coming back. None. They are corrupted from top to bottom, starting at the bottom and working their way up to the top where eventually, finally, Joe Biden says what he said. The CEOs and the leaders of the government were the last ones to the woke party. That's how you know that that thing has legs yeah. because it was demanded by the grassroots. It was not implemented top down. And so our solution is going to have to be similar aside from political solutions and aside from other conflict oriented solutions, our grassroots movement has to be stronger and take time to work its way through to build parallel networks, not institutions. Institutions begun become uh, to exist in order to persist. We don't want that anymore. They're corrupted and now they have the ability to self, you know, to persist in their tyranny. 
When we want our networks, networks that arise to meet your needs and dissipate, or you can freely disassociate from after they stop meeting your needs. This is why networks are superior to institutions. And that is a fundamental hypothesis. This, the feminist approach, uh, attack on masculinity, and the failure of institutions and the need to build networks are, those are the, the core, the, the co-fundamental thesis for the creation of the liminal order and what we do on a, on an everyday basis. And we now have 750 guys across the world. Now, I'm not talking about 750 guys on a mailing list or following me on Twitter. I'm talking about 750 active, engaged, real men who I know, who I hang out with, who I break bread with, who I engage with on a daily basis that are out there doing this kind of work in their own personal lives. So that is what I am doing. People are always like sometimes, oh, you're just a guy on Twitter, all this big talk, yada, yada. What are you doing, bro? Mm. I've freaking dedicated my life to this every single waking moment of every single day. And I'm traveling all around the country all the time to talk to people to help build this movement. So that's what I'm doing. How it all plays out in the end, don't know, but it's not looking good. I'll give you a bit of hope. Uh, the church, it is under attack and it is falling away. A lot of it, I think. I was shocked to find that social justice was in the church because I came to Christianity after leaving my old social justice religion. So first of all, I was shocked to find it there. But, but the positive side is that there are churches who are pushing back these small grassroots churches and the big woke ones are, they're going to, I think, I think it's going to be a wheat from the chaff thing. They're going to fall away. People aren't going to church to find that you can find woke ideology in the secular world. You don't need to go to put a Christian stamp on it, you know? And um, I'm, very lucky that I'm blessed. I found an amazing preacher, an amazing church community. It's a new one. It started during the lockdowns. And I have a feeling there's a lot of churches like this that are just, it's Bible-based. It doesn't really have a denomination. And it's fully aware of the culture war that you're talking about that we're engaged in. Well, that's an, that's a, an, uh, uh, um, a good sign, a positive sign, an uplifting sign. Mm -hmm. Um, we have to keep in mind that the long march through the institutions took 50 years. Yes. And they have captured I think all the I would argue it took hundreds of years. But <laughs> sure. I would sure. I would argue it took longer, but yeah. Sure, sure, yeah. sure. Uh but you know, let's let's say post Cold War, at least where we had basically every not even post Cold War, I mean post World War II, where we had basically everybody in the nation was like geared up to fight tyranny and fight fascism and then was sleeping on communism. FDR was like he was buddy buddies with Stalin. He was really expecting there to be all kinds of positive relationships between him and Stalin and Soviet and Russia. He didn't understand why he wasn't responding the way he thought he was supposed to. But I think we kind of all slept on it. And then, you know, you look back in, on that McCarthy hearings and era and it's like, did they go about it in a bad way? Probably. Did some innocent people get trampled during all that? Probably. But was he right? Probably. <laughs> yeah. It turns out he was probably kind of right, right? Kind of yeah. right. That's a scary thing. Which yeah. is really crazy to think about, right? Given, yeah. I mean, do you remember? I mean, we're all sort of similar ages when we were young in school. They, Joe McCarthy was presented as the evil guy. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Chance. yeah. Yeah. He was the evil guy, but here we are. The communists have taken over, and the president is using, whether he knows it or not, Marxist-related language. I'm sure you've seen this, but back when we were young at that same time, while we were be to being told about uh, McCarthy being uh, on this witch hunt, 
Yuri Bezmenov was running around North America telling everyone, this is what's happening. This is what we're doing. Pay attention. And, you know, it's only I only found him in the past few years. And I look yeah. back and I go, oh, I guess if I was paying attention 30 years ago or if anyone else is paying attention 30 years ago, we'd have seen this coming a mile away. He <sighs> laid it out. There it Those is. Those videos are chilling. Yeah. Yeah. They're grainy late 60s, early 70s mm-hmm. videos. And, you know, he's got the, the gear from the 50s and the 60s. And, you know, he, he just looks like he snatched right out of time. And there he is just laying it all out step by step by step by step by step. And we are in what he called the demoralized phase yeah. right now. Yep. There's no question about it. And when you look at, I believe it's like the, one of the army field manuals, maybe there is like a hierarchy of like guerrilla and insurrectionary action and, and, and institution or insurgency takeover. And like, are we, have like moved through all the various phases. <laughs> We're like down near to the bottom. And when you look at it through those models, uh, if, if man, if you listen to Alexander Solzhenitsyn's address to Harvard in the late seventies, he knew it too. He knew it then. He knew that the spirit of the West was, was already dead. They thought Why that he, is it that people can't hear? Is it like you said, if the majority of the population is watching this right now, they wouldn't have any idea what we're talking about. How is it that, is it, is it a failure on the part of, of our artists? Because I know people, we've read, we have a book club where we've been reading a lot of the dystopian classics. We read a lot of nonfiction as well. And and a lot of these guys that we call prophetic, it's, yes, they were prophetic, but also I think they're just writing about human nature because we seem to just repeat ourselves over and over. Um, is there a failure on the part of artists to help people see this? Like sometimes yeah. I ask, if if somebody made a movie about everything that's happening right now, but they said it was fiction, would people be able to see it then if it was presented as sci-fi? I mean, yes, there's a failure in art. I put out a call on my podcast for dissident artists. Who are the dissident artists? And one of the names that was sent to me, Tom McDonald. Look him up. Yes, I love him. Dude, I love that guy. I'm yeah. trying to get him on the show. We're close. Oh, good. If that ever works out. We're oh, close. that would be fun. <laughs> it's awesome, man. It's awesome. We need more dissident art. We need films. We need to put things in perspective in a digestible way that makes people both terrified, but also makes it feel authentic and realistic and believable. People just don't care. They don't care because they're fat and they're happy and they're doped up and they're jerking off and they're watching porn and playing video games and drinking their box wine and, you know, buying their Mercedes. Lots of good stuff on Netflix. Lots of great yep. stuff on Netflix. Um, I just watched something really fun, like cold, dark water or something like that about a British, like a British whaling vessel. Really fascinating. (laughs) uh, There's lots of great stuff. (laughs) But, um, but you know, I, it's almost as if we're so far gone, people wouldn't believe it. And then facing, facing that reality. Look, if we accept the premise that the institutions have been taken over by communists, basically, I wish to see America dead, basically then we have to blame our parents. Our parents messed up. That's hard. We have to blame oh, ourselves. Yeah. But that, I mean, I think that's where the cultural uh, feeling of, of deriding boomers is coming from. There's mm. this, there's the sense of the young, from the younger generation and they don't use the word boomer necessarily correctly. Um, but <laughs> everybody over 35 now. Yeah. <laughs> right. But there is this sense and it's a valid sense that like, Hey, someone screwed up to get us here. Um, 
And that's true. Someone did screw up. Uh, I, you know, what? I'm, I'm sorry to do this. I have a thing that I've got that came up at the last minute. I have to drop out, but I'm going to let Carrie wrap this up. Well, we I can continue to talk to you forever, but I'm going to drop out. Uh, so it was great to talk to you, Jack. Absolutely. Great talking with you. I appreciate it. Actually, Jack, why don't you just, we'll, we'll definitely have you back. I, I want to make sure uh, we tell people where to find you online because I don't think I mentioned it at the beginning and we'll put all these links. You guys can find them in the comment section below. Awesome. So follow me on Twitter. First thing, Jack Murphy Live. If you're a man interested in masculinity, brotherhood and sovereignty, sign up for the Liminal Order mailing list. That's liminal-order.com. And if you are a freedom lover who likes food and fun and friends, we're doing a nationwide social Sunday tour called Jack Brunch. You follow the Twitter account at Jack Brunch. And we are traveling all around the country this year, starting this weekend in Chicago on September 12th, New York on September 26th, Tampa on October 14th, Nashville on October 26th, so on and so forth to California, Denver, Texas, Washington, all over. Yep, we're coming to Austin. Oh, I'll be there. Fantastic. So that's on Sundays. It's a Sunday social for those of us on the right side of things. And it is uh, going to be fantastic. Five-star brunch and buffet. And uh, come hang out with people, hear some speeches, uh, meet like-minded folks, build the community that you need. Right now, they want us separate and distinct and isolated and afraid and, and alone. So we have to counteract that by proactively reaching out, creating fellowship and community, breaking bread and drinking wine with each other in order to build those bonds that cannot be broken by this nonsense around us today. So come join us at Jack Brunch. Join us in the Liminal Order if you're a dude. And follow me on Jack Murphy Live, no matter who you are. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jack, for giving us your time, your patience on getting this set up and uh, the benefit of your insight. I'm really happy I got to talk with you. Absolutely, Carrie. Great to see you. It was great to meet you in person uh, last year at the election party at Tim's house. And I uh, look forward to seeing you again. Cool. Thanks for watching. If you're new to the channel, we have a deep content library that includes interviews with everyone from Mike Cernovich to Megan Murphy. So go check it out. If you'd like to see more, please consider supporting the show by visiting unsafespace.com slash donate. You can find us on all the major social media platforms. Well, mostly. And you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space chat on Telegram. See you there. Warning. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by the Cathedral. The following co-conspirators have been unpersoned and may be subject to federal entrapment. Research shows that wearing a mask significantly reduces the risk of becoming infected with independent thought. The next war will be nothing like Afghanistan. I promise. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. 
science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.